I'm definitely finding myself moving toward more authenticity and not holding back and just being able to say what I say, but doing that from a place I'm trying to, at the same time, do a lot of inner spiritual work where I'm grounding myself in having really good intentions and feelings for everyone, regardless of where they are. Today, I will be talking to Jana Spingler. Um, I met Jana through the Restoration Table, the Facebook group. Um, we both um, are also officially trained refs for three practice circles. So that's I've I've interacted with Jana a little bit there, and I don't know. We don't know each other super well, but I. Um, I know that you lean more kind of on the liberal side of things, of politics, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about that. Uh, and before we do that, though, I I just um, started into your Mormon stories, just as like, okay, let's get to know her a little bit. And uh, my husband told me to watch that a long time ago, but I was kind of done. I was over the 24-hour interview thing, <laughs> so I never took the time to do it. But um, yes, we are definitely kindred spirits. So, um, I wanted to say some of the stuff that I think I'm only like two hours in when you said that you've never felt disciplined and that you, um, like self-disciplined, well, you never felt disciplined enough to do your scripture study and your prayer. Yes. That absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly how I was. And when you were saying like, well, when I do that, that's when I'll get my spiritual experience. I was like, yeah, that was me. That was, that was me for sure. But you know, I, I would always listen to Benar gave this talk about the, the sun coming up or the light switching on. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a sun coming up pers- person. I'm not a light switch person. So I never, it, like, like you said, I was fully committed still. I didn't need that, mm. but I always felt like I should be doing that. And that was such a basic Sunday school answer thing. Why am I not able to do this? And then you said you, you felt like you were kind of an only child as you grew up because your siblings were all gone. I have a five-year gap between me and the youngest. So I also had that experience. And when you were talking about going to college, live at home or go on your own, I had kind of, I went to Snow College, which took me away from uh, my hometown instead of taking, it would have cost about the same. It was sixes, but I chose Mm -hmm. to move away from home. And that also was a really good experience for me. So that was kind of cool. you also mentioned that you, you never had like obvious answers to prayers. Like you just kind of went forward, but you had those lessons too at church, right? Like if you don't get an answer, just act, then you will, you know? Yeah. So anyways. Yes. Yes. And lots of messaging that, you know, what are you really expecting? Are you expecting a sign? But then at the same time, I'd go and hear all of these talks where people were talking about all the signs they'd had. Right. So right. it was very confusing. You, you talked about that summer where you were home with your kids. And I had a lot of summers like that. I was wondering how old were your kids when you went through that part? Oh, let's see. My oldest was probably about 11. Yeah. I had a, I had a very similar summer. I was, I was running. I think that's how I was trying to keep myself alive. And I had, a, I think it was six or four, how old were my kids? They must've been six, four and two. And I had a moment, like you were saying, you had this moment where you were like, do I even, is God even real? Like I had that a similar moment. It was like, 
did Joseph Smith really have literal gold plates? Like I had this realization that I don't believe that kind of stuff. I don't know how to explain it because I was already Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. believing it outside of church, but church was a special place where I could believe that stuff. And I had Mm. this, I had this moment where I noticed that I was like, I don't think I believe that, but Mm. you talked to your Bishop right away. I did not. I, I just suffered with that alone for about three years, but I wasn't even sure if it was real because I, it was just a thought I had, like, I wasn't even sure if I really believed it, you know? So it's all really confusing when you don't have someone to talk to. Cause when, when you talk to people, that's when you figure stuff out, I think, but yeah. And, and talk to people who understand where you're coming from. Right. Yeah. I talked to my bishop and it wasn't helpful. Right. He just tries um, to remind you and push, push, push it back in the box. <laughs> absolutely. And point out the places where he thought I was maybe thinking about it the wrong way or, you know, there, there was some of that in that conversation. Um, right. But it wasn't until I heard podcasts and then met people who were going through this, then it was a whole different experience. And so much of my stress and pain was relieved at that point. Not all of it, but it was a big shift because um, there's just something about not feeling not alone. alone. Yeah, mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so now I'm kind of curious where you're at now, because mm-hmm. I didn't get to the end of Mormon mm-hmm. story. So now I'm going to have to like skip ahead. So you're still active and mm-hmm. participating. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So do you feel like you can say what you're thinking at church at this point? Have you been able to like say, okay, I'm going to make some people uncomfortable or do you avoid saying certain things at church? Yeah, good question. I'm definitely aware when I'm at church, I am definitely aware that I am thinking things internally that do not probably match the center of gravity in the room, right? I, I definitely think that if I were to say everything that were in my head, it would cause problems and tons of discomfort. And it's, it's not the reason anyone is coming to church. Sure. to have those kinds of conversations. That was really hard for me at the beginning. And um, though I've never been somebody to be really like confrontational, like that's just wrong kind of a thing in church. Um, I am someone who speaks my mind. And so, and I, and I've, I, I, over the years, I've gotten some skills about knowing what is actually helpful to the room, what is helpful to the discussion, what's helpful for me. Um, and recognizing I don't have to say every thought that's in my head. So, so it, it, it's, it's hard to specifically answer that question. Am I safe to say everything I'm thinking? No. And, and I wouldn't want what would result from that. Would I like to have a space where I could say all of that with believing people? It would be amazing. I would love that. But no, I don't feel like that exists. But I do feel like I am free to say some things. And I probably, I do. When I open my mouth, I'm, I'm highly aware that I am using language and sounding very different than what people are used to. But I try to find the common denominator. I try to find the thing that lifts all of us to our higher ideals or that speaks to something painful, someone that I'm, I'm aware. I know that because of the work I do, I work with people in faith transition. I, I work in um, post-Mormon circles. I work with people who um, I understand a lot of their pain and I've been, I've been, I've experienced some of it in my way. And then I've, I've been exposed to hundreds, if not thousands of other people who have also spoken their pain. 
So I'm aware of a lot. So when I'm in the room and someone says something that I perceive will be hurtful without the speaker intending to be hurtful, I don't think any of them or anyone is intending to be hurtful, but if it's going to be, and, and I imagine that there's probably at least one person in the room who has some sort of um, touchstone with that, I will say something in defense of the person who might've been harmed. And I, it, it's, it's kind of easy for me because I can just say, hey, it's the people I work with. We should be aware of this kind of thing, you know? So it doesn't have to be so personal, I guess, when I share that way. But those are the two times that I feel like it's it's helpful to say something is when I feel like we're getting a little too narrow. We're not quite living up to the ideals of inclusive Christianity, or when I know that someone is is likely potentially specifically harmed by what's being said. And I will speak up and I'm not too afraid to send some ripples, but I want to do it with everyone in the room, everyone's best, I don't know, I have the best intentions for everybody. Sure. But it's impossible to do that without ruffling feathers, and I've decided that that's worth it in those instances. Okay. Um, Do you feel like you can, like you've been on some public podcasts and said, Mm -hmm. so do you feel like you can say what you're thinking freely there, or are you even holding back then? Also a great question. I think uh-huh. that changes over time. Yeah, I would say um, it's it's a dance and it's something that I've spent a lot of time worried about, anguished about, you know, um, what do I do? How do I present myself? Um, I definitely have said things in public podcasts and I have had leaders hear what I've said and express concern to me. Um, I've had other leaders say that they've they're in touch with that and they haven't expressed concern um i think a lot of the things i say it just depends on the listener and where they are whether they're going to take offense to things i say but increasingly what i'm finding for me is that i don't know that i want to continue to be part of an organization where i have to hide who i am sure And at the same time, I'm also holding that I'm not here to try to change anybody in the institution. I'm not trying to force anything on somebody or make someone okay with me. And it's a really hard balance to hit. Um, So I don't know, I'm trying, I'm, I'm definitely finding myself moving toward more authenticity and not holding back. And just being able to say what I say, but doing that from a place, I'm trying to, at the same time, do a lot of inner spiritual work where I'm grounding myself in having really good intentions and feelings for everyone, regardless of where they are. Mm-hmm. I don't all, I mean, most of the time I'm not doing that very well, but that's my intention, right? Sure. So I keep trying to come back to that intention and be wise about the way I, I do things and just try to be the best person I can be and with the best lenses and the most generous lenses for people. And then hopefully I, I'm just saying what's coming from my heart and hopefully it's helpful and rather than destructive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I had a thought back there, but you said some good stuff. So now I've lost it, but, um, oh yes. So if like, so do you feel like you still have a spiritual home in the church? Like, are you uplifted? Um, like, I'm assuming that there's some benefit there. Like, what, where is that? Where do you find that in, in your, yeah. like, in your membership? Yeah, so. Even um, where you're at, right? Yeah, it, it varies. 
depending on the day and the subject we're talking about and whatever. The, the one thing that is, that is common to my worship, and, and I will just say, I'm, I'm a person who is pretty, I don't know, I don't want to make this sound superior, but I, I'm very conscientious about COVID right now. I'm not someone who is just going to church because everybody is. So right now we're in a big spike in Utah. So, you know, over the last two years, I'm, I've, I've had little stints when numbers have come down when I've, I've wandered into the church building, but it's been a while. So I'm also kind of aware of that, but who knows when I go back, things may change. But in general, right now, when I do go, I, it, uh, this, the part that is spiritual for me, there are two things. Part of my spiritual practice is really listening to people, trying to understand where they're coming from. And what that has been doing for me is helping me understand where I differ. And then I can get really curious about that. Like, why do I, why is that? Is that some personality trait? Is that some um, inner truth trying to come up? Is what is going on there? Um, and that's been a real spiritual practice for me all along this journey. The second one is just leaning into the love of people and community because I, I find that I love to be in spaces where there are a bunch of people who are all wanting to um, find inspiration or improve in some way. And we may all do it different ways, but I'm really inspired by people who want that. And I, I, I get something from being around people who are doing that. Now, specific doctrinal stuff and lessons, I'll be honest, I don't get a lot of deep spiritual fulfillment from it. I get interest in understanding how different people see things, but I do most of my deeper spiritual work and things that really make me come alive spiritually, I'm supplementing on my own outside of the, of, of church. But every once in a while, I mean, we had a, I had a, I had the opportunity to speak in state conference a couple of months ago and, um, and it was an amazing meeting. I, I wouldn't say that's the norm for me in my experience, but it was a particularly wonderful meeting talking about unity and talking about um, ways that we can be better neighbors and friends to one another. That inspired me. So it's hit and miss. Yeah. I would say more, more miss than hit, to be yeah. honest, with maybe what's being spoken. But it's the experience of being there with people that is more enlightening to me. That's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting when you're so worried about whether it's true like it has to be true, you get flipped to, it's obviously false. And then that's all you can see. So it seems like you've kind of stepped away from that and you can see the real reason you were there all along. <laughs> I, I don't yes. know. I, let's go ahead. And I will say that's a good day. I mean, I want to be real about this because it's not like I go to church skipping and come home and I've got a happy face on and so glad I went. I mean, honestly, there are many times my husband can attest to this. I'll come home and I'll be so triggered or I'll be so sad. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was, I, I've been listening to the Zoom sacrament meetings, and even though I'm not attending in person. And my heart just came out really heavy and hurt because two different talks mentioned the people who leave the church and neither comment what they were both derogatory toward that group of people. And I knew with all the people I work with, it's, it, it's, a, it's coming from misconception. It's coming from not understanding. And 
I just, I just thought, man, if you put any other group of people in that sentence, people would be horrified that they were grouping people and, and, and putting those labels on them, you know, like, oh, they're just very self-centered was one of them, you know, things like that. And I, I just thought, how is it that people who question or people who leave the church are so, we're so comfortable openly um, maligning them. Right. Like that's an example of, I come home really affected and I have to do some work to, to kind of calm down and remember that I really like the people who spoke and, you know, that's interesting. Um, it's hard. I definitely felt that uh, when we were in our stint between when I was released, but we were still going to church. It was right before COVID shut everything down. There's an older guy. I mean, I'm not sure that this gentleman ever said anything that was super helpful. Like that's just, you know, always have some of those in your ward. Right. But he was mentioning how his cousin left the church and wrote a book and how he was just, he went on like this three or four minute thing about how terrible his cousin was. And I'm just thinking, his book probably had a bunch of true stuff in it. Like, I just, like, it was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Cause, but at the same time, I, I just kind of rolled my eyes. I, I don't know that I was mm-hmm. at that point that bothered by it. Cause I hadn't left yet, <laughs> but, right. um, and people are different, are bothered in different amounts, depending on sure. their own personal experience. And this is why those triggers can be so useful in understanding ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, because I started noticing like, oh, if someone mentions conditional loving God, I just, I lose it because I, that cause, that idea caused me so much pain throughout my life. And when I let go of that, my, my spiritual world opened up, my connection to the divine just went, right. Just, it's been awesome, but yeah, it's, it's hard. And, and I, I, I see a lot of people who are just like, I, I want to go to church, but I don't want to be this triggered. And to be honest, I don't even know that that's a reality. I think those triggers are important. They're important to tell us where we are and what messages are no longer serving us. So, um, so it's not an easy emotional experience, but it doesn't maybe drag on for as long as it used to for me. I move through it more quickly. Yeah. And <laughs> try to give that person the benefit of the doubt. Like, they said something, it seemed like it was really harmful, but I know they're not trying to be harmful. So what, what is it about them? What happened in their world to make that be the way that they think right now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. Even Mm -hmm. the word trigger is triggering Mm. for Mm. a conservative. So Mm. I, um, interesting. I, it, it is super useful term. Generally when there's a word like that though, I will try mm-hmm. to avoid using it just to mm-hmm. speak a more universal language in my opinion. But then it makes so me tell wonder me, tell me what kind of language I'm using. That's not universal for everybody mm-hmm. that I'm not even noticing. Yeah. It makes me wonder. So, so I, I want to understand more about that. What is it for conservatives that that word trigger connotes and what is a better word to be using? Let me try to describe it like this. So I would say it's, it's the, it's the mantra of like, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt you. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it's not that words can't actually ever, actually ever hurt. Like I fully Mm -hmm. understand that they can hurt people. I Mm -hmm. think for me, I don't try to protect myself with triggering language. If it's triggering, 
I think it's more important to voluntarily expose myself to it so that I am no longer triggered by it. And so I worry sometimes that say like my child was triggered by something somebody said at church or something somebody said to them because they were no longer Mm -hmm. believing. I wouldn't try to protect them. How do I word this? Mm -hmm. I'm worried for my kids. I can't change the community they live in. They live in an LDS community. This is where we live. And so I feel like if I prepare my kids for the road, they're going to be much more successful than if I try to get all the LDS community around them aware that when they say this, 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 and this, and this, that might hurt them. I think it's Mm -hmm. easier to help my kids figure out how to be resilient and not, does that, so, Mm -hmm. so that's, and so usually when the, the word trigger is used, it's to protect a certain group of people, which I equally want to protect them. I don't want to hurt people. That's not what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. I'm just saying, am I hurting some people by giving them the expectation that we can change our world to always be safe? Cause it's just not a safe place. The world is not safe. Mm -hmm. Like, so I guess that's, that's kind of if in a really long answer, did you get your answer? (laughs) Yeah, no, that that helps me understand what, what is going on there. Cause I, I don't know if you know that's how I would me, art, that's how I would articulate it. <laughs> I mean, as of about, I mean, ten years ago, as recently as ten years ago, I was a Republican delegate. So I've not always leaned liberal. Oh well, it's, it's been I, kind of a shift for me. Oh, so, man, but triggering wasn't a Go big ahead. word that I remember being conservative. So that's it's interesting for me to to understand where that's coming from these days. I would say that it's popped up. I didn't even know it was a word. I was out of college before there were trigger warnings in classes Mm -hmm. and stuff, but that's where I became aware of that word was in conservative (laughs) media saying this isn't a good idea. And whether or not I generally with um, any kind of political media, I was saying this to someone Mm -hmm. earlier today, but political media is basically you taking their straw man and then pummeling it to the ground and then patting yourself on the back. That's what both sides do. And it is just absolutely not interesting. So can I, can I riff on one more little idea around that? And it's interesting with this word trigger. I I think this is kind of true when, cause I've, I've spent time in both camps now. Sure. Right. Both political camps. And I would say that what I notice is that the, the conservatives are really, really concerned with individual responsibility. Sure. And individual evils and, yeah. you know, that resilience. And, and so it makes sense that um, we want to, from a conservative standpoint, would want to, for sure, like, let's work on that individually. Let's not try to change everybody and let's just, you know, get that inner resilience to that. And then I notice on the, on the liberal side, they are far more focused on systems. So they're more focused on how do we make this a better place for everybody? How do we make it a safer place for everybody? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and I think and I think they ignore individual responsibility hmm. sometimes to the detriment, where I think conservatives ignore systemic evils to the to our detriment. And so I, it's one of the framings I've been kind of thinking about is how do we leverage the good in both of those? Right. Because one without the other is not complete. 
because I agree there's no safe space. And as a system, we should make things safer and try to make things safer anyway. Yeah. Right. While we work on our personal resilience, there's wisdom in both. I I fully agree. And I would say when I say I'm conservative, I would say I Mm -hmm. see, I see the weakness of the liberal side easier than I can see the weakness of the conservative side. And I, I've, I've recognized that. I love Jonathan Haidt's work. And I do yes. think that we need to be able to talk to each other, um, which is why I love three practices, which I'm assuming is why you like it as well. I did want to ask about just different hot topics on mm-hmm. the political landscape. And I let me say this. When you mm-hmm. like look at Mormon stories and you look at... Mm-hmm kind of where a lot of these ex-Mormon spaces are going, do you feel like Mm -hmm. they lack that conservative voice? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think the, the conservative voice is minimized in that. And it's almost assumed, I think, in a lot of those crowds that. That's um, the right way to think, right? That you've moved or that that everyone has, has graduated from conservative conservative and we've all moved to the left. Right. Right. And there are enough people that that is true for that it just becomes kind of an assumption. But I'll notice at times when, you know, I, you know, I've heard John Dillon say that he uh, maybe brought up, you know, the COVID stuff or, you know, made some political comment or, you know, um, and would lose subscribers. So, you know, that they're that conservative uh, voices there, but it's almost like we've traded being afraid in our in our believing yes. circles to mention liberal ideas. It's I, I think the opposite is true in those post Mormon circles for sure. Um, that that's exactly what I was going to say. I I was yeah. like, do you, there's this purity culture at church where you can't say mm-hmm. anything negative about the brother, and you can't say anything negative about Joseph Smith. You can't point out any flaws, and then right. it's almost like on the ex-Mormon side, you get looked at funny if you mention, hey, the church was really good for me in this way. I feel like the most healing for, thing for me as I've gone through this is when I've self-reflected and gone, where am I going? Like, like am, I, am I improving myself? And that's been the healing thing for me. It's not been deconstructing all the things that are wrong with the church. It just hasn't, that hasn't been healing for me. I, it was, I went through a time where it was all I could think about. And then I got exhausted from it and then I didn't care anymore. But then I was kind of, I I was listening. I mean, Jordan Peterson is like basically a self-help guy and that's what he says. And so I feel like that's helped me do that. And by no means think he's a hundred percent right on everything. In fact, my last um, interview was with John Verveke and Mm -hmm. he was also interviewed by Jordan Peterson. And that's the one thing I mentioned to John is that when I'm listening to Jordan Peterson, he's so apologetic toward the religious and he will every once in a while throw in a fundamentalism is bad. Mm-hmm. He, he, he will say that rarely, mm-hmm. but the problem is, is everyone doesn't, every, everyone that's going to church is like, well, there's always someone more fundamental than you. So you're like, they're the fundamental ones. The ones that are not <laughs> as fundamental as me are too liberal and they're going to be apostates and I'm the just right one. I'm walking mm. that straight and narrow path. I think that's just true of a lot of us in life, right? Right. I, mean, I think it's a, it's an advanced move to really start to be able to take in differentiation and understanding that other people can 
be having a different experience in life and see things through a different lens than you do. And that it doesn't have to be threatening. I I think our biology is wired to be threatened by difference. Or to want a tribe to protect us. Because if we, Mm -hmm. if we're, if we're not being nice to the Mormons or the ex-Mormons, then we're going to get killed out there by ourselves. Like exactly. Brene Brown a little bit, right? And, and I have to wonder how much of that also is we get these, we, we flatten out both groups. We flatten out those believing Mormons. We flatten out the, the post-Mormons. Um, and we're, and we, do, we do this politically as well, right? Where we, we flatten the whole movement to one thing. And it's usually the worst parts of the fringes. Yes. And it's really actually maybe not even where the majority of people are. Right. Right. So, it, it, you know, when I imagine what it has been difficult for me about the church in my life, I'm, I, I, I do it too. I generalize my language and say, well, this is what Mormons think. This is what's been hard for me, you know, or this is the way post-Mormons are holding that. And that's right. But the truth is when you really get to know people, there are a thousand different ways that people are holding all of it. But there's one that for whatever reason, the loudest voices, the most extreme voices, everyone else kind of just silences themselves and allows that to be the thing that is being heard. Right. So kind of fascinated or maybe, by that. Or maybe that's the thing that just gets clicks because you're mad or mm-hmm. maybe the people that are wanting to like navigate that middle space that mm-hmm. takes effort and you can't be on autopilot. That's right. Because if you're on autopilot, you're going to you're going to drift to one side or the other and then just kind of stay there. And it takes effort to be, it does. It takes effort to be in the room with difference. If it's really hard to see things from other people's perspectives, for sure. I think we're fighting our own biology in that. And that's why it's true. So many middle way people will find their way into my office and they, almost all of them report to me that they feel lonely. They yes. feel alone. They feel like this is a, a lonely space, and I, I'm, I don't have a space where I'm free to be me because I'm being shouted down by both sides. So that's a good segue. I am developing an idea that you can mm. actually be yourself, and you just have to be close enough to the person that they know you, and you have to be uh, sincere. I don't know how to. I mean, if you approach someone in good faith. And you say, I disagree. I respect you for that, though. I'm not going to call you names for thinking something different than me. And then, and then you can actually, here's, here's my example. So I have made a really good friend. She's not super political around me. I think we both understand that we're not on the same page. So she's not going to like vent about something that I probably don't agree with, but I, I know her enough that I know that she is more on the left side of politics as well. Let's just put it that way. And I was yeah. concerned because I'm in an ex-Mormon space that I couldn't let her know what I was, right? It's the same thing at church. You you don't realize you can actually say what you're thinking and people will still love you. And I, I didn't know that either when I was at church, that I was like, yeah. I can't say I know anymore. And I was so ashamed of that, but I said it and people still loved me even at church. So I, I don't think we give each other a chance either, I guess is um I think that's true. it's not that we aren't safe to actually say what we're thinking it's just that we're sometimes we need the courage to do it and maybe there's sometimes where you shouldn't because you are really mad and you're not going to say the right thing and you are going to hurt somebody else you don't want to do that either but 
I mean, it's just practicing, right? <laughs> For sure. And, and I would say that there's enough in, I, I agree with you, we, we don't give enough people the benefit of the doubt. And there are also people who are really threatened by it and do make problems for people who speak out. So there yeah. is that real danger as well. It's not that it is all in our minds, but I do think we go too far thinking everyone is there. In my experience, as I, you know, I was a Relief Society teacher for a couple of years while I was deep in the wrestle of, I don't have no idea what I believe. My experience would be that I, I was definitely giving lessons that were maybe a little out there. I wasn't always doing it eloquently or elegantly. And the Relief Society president would be like, yeah, you're making people uncomfortable. She wasn't happy about it. <laughs> she would bring it up. But if I'd ask, I would get a very energetic, you're a problem is how I was reading it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, you're making people uncomfortable and people do come and talk to me. And, and what she wasn't aware of is that I was also getting five texts or, you know, someone whispering in the hall, thank you so much for saying it. I really needed this. You know, um, and so what I find is that in my experience, even when I speak up, and even if there are other people in the room who maybe agree with my maybe slightly fringy thing that I'm saying, mm -hmm. um, they don't they don't give me public backup. They don't raise their hands because there is still some stigma that that you're doing something wrong if you do and they don't want to out themselves. And so it's been amazing to me how many people hear what I say and come out of the woodwork to talk to me privately, hmm. but how few will actually say it themselves within the meetings. Right. So there, there's reason for fear. There's reason to not want to stick your neck out. And it's not as hostile with everybody as we think. You know, it's interesting. How do we get the courage to say what we're thinking? Like, I think it's so important because if you, you think about some of the atrocities that happened in history, it's because people didn't have the courage to say what they're thinking. And if they all did it, they would have had courage and been like, oh, 90% of us, they're thinking this. Why didn't we speak up? There's not an easy answer because I think just trying to buoy everybody up and get the courage to say it. Some people do that, not being emotionally able to handle the lack of belonging that comes their way. That's true. And it's not really wise for everybody to do that. I mean, they, they're for some people, for their mental health, I don't think they, they should do that. So I think it's a two-pronged approach. I think we do have to become more, um, more differentiated, less concerned about having everyone love us and be the same as us. And we also have to work systemically. I just think that we have to find ways and it has to come from the top down of teaching us how to create safer places to understand how we can, how we can deal with the discomfort that comes up with that, how we can befriend discomfort. That's one of the things If I could just start a curriculum for the church. That would be one of the first things I would put on the list is, can we learn how to stop vilifying difficult feelings? Can we go inward a little bit and notice our own triggers? Instead notice of thinking our it's own from Satan and, and then and, and get away yes. from it because you train yourself yes. to stay away from anything that feels uneasy because that Absolutely. might be Satan. 
and then we run into toxic positivity problems. So mm -hmm. I, I think, I think that it would be really helpful, but right now, truly what we, we just want to go to church. We want to feel good. We don't want to be challenged, but what we don't understand is that you grow and you get challenged. Yeah, exactly. How can <laughs> we become better people unless we're willing to be uncomfortable? You, you can't, On the, but we know that though, you learn that, that trials, right. You go through hard things, right? but for Right. But feelings, yeah, that it's true. I never, I've never even thought of that. That you are trained to avoid uncomfortable feelings because you're. I wouldn't even say it's universal either, because I think there's plenty of people that even have the literal belief that Satan can give you those feelings would understand mm -hmm. that that's not universally true. That any bad mm -hmm. feeling is from Satan. They do understand that, but that is interesting. That that. Uh, it's a little bit of a crutch for self-deception for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If you can, if you can never allow yourself to be angry. I mean, I, I, I just think it would do us wonders to learn to befriend our anger. I would say I'm, I, I would love to be, I look forward to a day when someone in Relief Society can raise their hand and say, I got so angry this week and it was so good for me. It rec I recognized how some boundaries were being crossed and I needed to be more protective of myself and be kind to myself because I realized that I deserved that. And it was really helpful to me to, to channel that, that anger into something Action. really good. So yeah. it doesn't happen again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's but true. Instead, what I find is most people that come in my office feel a lot of guilt over those emotions. I'm not doing it right. Something's wrong with me. I've let a bad influence in. It's almost automatic. Hmm. They were like, how do I stop having these bad feelings? A huge number of people come to me to say, how do I stop having these bad feelings? And what, what I want to say is, don't worry about not having them. Worry about transmuting them, welcoming them in. What is the intelligence in them? What, what good can come from what intelligence is in it for you? Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. So systemic problems. Let's go back to that. Mm. So mm. how do you fix things systemically? Like, um, I think, well, definitely the idea that Jordan Peterson has been touting is that you fix yourself and then that's going to, that's going to spread. Mm. And, um, but when you're mad at the system, the only thing you can really do is destroy it. You're not uh, I don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You're, you're just, you're seeing yeah. all the problems, mm -hmm. but you're not even powerful enough to fix them because you haven't developed yourself to go into the battle, I guess. To me, Jordan Peterson isn't saying don't fix the problems. He's saying they're fixed by really wise people and you have to mm -hmm. become wise. You can't just, you don't get that. You just don't get that. You have to become mm -hmm. that. You have to practice. You have to practice sitting in the room with someone that disagrees with you. You have to practice um, you have to practice being on time for stuff. Like you have, you have to be, a, uh, dependable, like all these characteristics that we would mm -hmm. say are good characteristics. You have to develop those. You have to, mm -hmm. and then those types of people can see the problems. I, I don't know, like explain to me systemic problems, because I think a lot of times I'll ask, like in some of those circles I've done, and those through practice circles, you ask, 
well, what would, what would it look like when we're there? And they never have an answer. There's never, it's always this really abstract thing. They know it's not there. They know it's not. So are they waiting for a utopia? Like, mm. are we making incremental progress or are we not? So again, I, I, I think that Jordan Peterson has a an important truth that is part of a bigger thing. Like yes. it's one side of it, right? Yes. I, I think personal responsibility. Yeah. If everyone's doing that, we're making a better society. What, what it ignores is power dynamics. So if, if we think about this within the church, just for instance, sure, there is a certain type of person, personality type demographic who does really well in the church. Like the system just works for them. It works for them. Those are the people who get the callings. You know, those are the people who rise up in the echelon of the church. And their experience doesn't always allow them to see why it doesn't work for someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. So most of the bishops that I that I would talk to would have a, a narrative of what I should be doing to correct all of my problems. But having never had that level of doubt, they're just telling me what strengthens their testimony. Right which is a very different answer than what I needed. Well, so if someone needs to leave the church, they're never going to give them that advice, right? To leave. Absolutely. Right. 100%. It could be, they could be like really, really harmed by the church and they would never give them that. that I think certain that personalities like mine don't flourish mm -hmm. in the church. I, I think I could now maybe, mm -hmm. um, but given the, at this point today, mm -hmm. I, it doesn't make sense that mm. all churches seem to have wisdom. I don't see why mm. tie myself to any one particular one mm -hmm. when they all demand that I, like to get baptized, you have to say certain things. I can't say those things. Mm -hmm. So it seems weird to actually mm -hmm. be active, but anyways, mm. go back to where you yeah, were. I mean, right. it's true. And personality is a big thing. I just did a podcast not long ago on at last. She said it and uh, talking about that very thing. I'm a very obedient types. personality. So I Works don't, wonderfully. I kind of feel like I need to kind of be on the chaos side of things to balance me out. Mm -hmm. I think there are mm -hmm. chaotic people that they need, they're never going to be perfect and they don't expect themselves to be perfect and they're okay with not being perfect. And they're like, yep. uh, yeah, the church is helpful. So this is for me. I, I've, I've played with that idea. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I let people decide mm -hmm. where they need to be. Like, I, I don't, yep. I don't yep. really have a lot of judgment where people are. They can be in the church or mm -hmm. out and whatever. 100%. So. so, so this is where Jordan, Jordan Peterson's idea falls apart. It's not complete. Mm -hmm. You could have a church where everyone is doing their, their work. They're, they're really functional people. They're responsible. They're good citizens. They're doing all the things. And yet someone on the fringe, a very responsible person, the system's just not working. We need, maybe there's wisdom in that, that we need to make space for more different types of people. Mm-hmm. But unless the people in charge hear that can empathize enough to take it in and get outside themselves enough to say, I wonder if this is a problem for someone else. I wonder if we should shift things. You can have a really problematic society. It's not going to fix it because not everybody's experience is the same. A, a white person is not going to know what it is like to be a black person unless you really start to listen to the black person. And, and when someone is in the minority, they don't always have the power to make the social shift. It has to be unlocked from the inside. 
So this takes far more than just personal responsibility. That is a step. It's an important step. Mm-hmm. And it's not the full story. We need people in power to listen to people on the margins because they actually have a leg up in understanding what the evils of the system are. Yes. That you wouldn't even see when you're in the core. When you're in the core and it's working for you, it doesn't even enter your mind. It's not in your experience at all. Yes. You definitely can't experience something. You have your subjective experience that mm-hmm. only you know, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So a system you're saying if they're, it's designed for a certain demographic. Mm-hmm. And that's why they do well. And that's why they lead it. Is it designed for a certain demographic or is it just traditional and it's gradually being improved on? Does that make do you see the difference like from one no it's it starts from who built it starts from who built it the the systems of power start with the people who built the system of power and they build it around what makes sense to them i don't think they're trying to take advantage of anybody no no that's not what i'm saying either i don't think so either but what i'm trying to say is i don't mm. think it's the same as when it started so if you use the church for example the church is not the same church today i don't believe the church is the same today as it was when it was restored. It's a totally different animal. So what I'm saying, there's influences that have influenced that and changed that to what it is today. And some of those things are um, the women's suffrage movement. Like that has changed the church already. Our church is different today than it was um, before, like in the early 1900s. Like we are making improvements. I, is it just not fast enough Absolutely. or is uh, it? Yeah, it's never fast enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Social change is achingly slow. Well, but, but I think the reason that it, that it does, I mean, I agree it's different from when it started, but part of that, I think it's, it's not unique to the LDS church. It is, it is how systems grow and develop systems flourish when someone who has a lot of organizational skills comes in and organizes it. It's hard for a system to flourish long-term if there isn't some sort of structure and organization and rules. Yes, you need rules because or else it's complete chaos. 100%. So the people who that's their personality and they're in charge. I mean, that did start from the beginning. Who was in charge? It was definitely men. And this started where it started, which means it was predominantly white people, right? So they, they, they designed something with rules and whatever that, that works really well for a certain demographic. And what often, as often happens with religion, the, the founder who has some really deep insight, some real deep connection, um, the rules start to overpower that inner like experience and knowledge and understanding that the initial prophet whatever you want to label that was trying to, to tell people. Okay. Go back, about. go back, go back and say that again, that last little yeah. bit. Okay. The initial person, we can call it a prophet. If we, if we call a prophet, someone or a mystic or someone who has this, this deep connection with the divine and, and it opens them up to some bigger truth. You know, I think this has happened throughout history. We have examples of people like this and you know, it's, it's like 
there's they they're they're aware of something they start talking about it and other people say wow that's amazing that's an amazing thing you're saying i want to be part of that and then if you organize into people it it the religion flourishes when the people come in and start to organize it over time it becomes more about the rules than it does that initial inspiration that initial like yes, connection it needs to be updated we have to continually work on this. Yes. And what's fascinating to me is that's what I read in the New Testament when I, I read about Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I see him doing this saying, guys, you've gotten too much on the outward like observance of the obedience of things. Right. And everything Jesus said, in my opinion was like, look inward, look inward. Where's the kingdom of God? It's inside. Sermon on the Mount, all about what's going on in here. All of the big moments were like here, like, no, go in, go inward. Oh, by the way, love, love is the guiding principle. Go in, go in, go in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet Christians throughout ever since have been like hold toward the outward observance and then let's judge each other about it. Mm-hmm. And it is real. It's really hard work to pull that back inward to, to have this more unitive way of seeing the world that was, I think, the message of just about every religious founder. Yeah. What am I not understanding? What's the goal of activists, say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If mm-hmm. I want to change somebody's mind, it seems like I should move in and not get them defensive. It mm-hmm. seems like the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Draw. And, okay, so we have this disagreement Let's see what we have in common, draw a bigger circle around us, not, not divide smaller and start dividing. Are you, do you have any thoughts here? Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, the program I did with Richard or the living school is, is run by, and it's a two-year program that I, that I did. Um, it's run by the center for action and contemplation. So this is a very big part of what we talk about there. The, the founder, Richard Rohr, in my opinion, he's a Catholic priest and he's, you know, deeply studied the Bible and the word of God his, for his entire career. And he starts noticing like, wow, if you really read Jesus, you notice that he's kind of a social activist. You kind of notice that he's not hanging out with the people in power. He's hanging out with the margins. And so I can see how someone really can see that. Christ- I don't see it that way, yeah. but keep going. <laughs> right, right. So it's like this deeply Christian thing is all about wanting better for the people who are not treated as well by society. So one way to read it, right? I would say, it's, no, and I think that's said, half of it. I would say that's half of yes. Christ. And yeah. And then he saw um, Richard, not Christ. <laughs> Richard Rohr saw that also he sees the way the activism works and he sees a lot of what you're talking about. Like we're just making people defensive and we're, we're doing this and this is what we're doing and no one's getting anywhere. So how do we bring these things together? Contemplation being, how do we really get connected with the divine? How do we get quiet enough to get rid of all of these worries and fears and, and egos and separations that we have in society? How do we get quiet enough to feel into that like deep connection to the world and to other people and just love for all of us in all of our difference. And then how do we come from a different place when we do our activism? But how do we notice how activism is necessary? So I, yeah, I am on the side of the theory of activism because I think it's necessary because 
if you're in the core, you don't even notice there's a problem unless someone is screaming loud enough on the margins that this is not okay. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's far too easy in the center to just say, oh, well, it's, they're the problem. I mean, cause it works. The system works. Look at me. It works. I don't have to listen. I mean, they're obviously just doing it wrong. It takes a lot for a person in power to have enough humility and bring down the, you know, have enough like deep questioning of themselves to even notice that there's another problem. So we need activists. We have to have activists saying, look, this is a problem. And if, if, if they had access to people in power and, and the person in power was willing to have a really nice sit down conversation and actually listen, we wouldn't need activists causing problems. What happens is people start, I see, I've seen a lot of people start with this. I mean, ordained women started with this. It was a nice little letter to the, to the church saying, Hey, these are the things we think that women could do in the church that maybe it wouldn't even change doctrine. Like, what about these things? What could, what could we do here? Are you praying about this? Like what's going on? You know, is there, is there a question being asked of God about women? They did it in a nice way. When they got zero response from the people in power, then what happens? Now they're going to ratchet it up a notch to get some attention. Mm -hmm. And it's not everybody's style. Not everybody's style is going to be that confrontational style. And it's the thing that sometimes has to scream loud enough to get heard, to get anything done, because all this imagining of we're just going to sit down and really listen to each other in practice doesn't actually happen. So I kind of feel like we need all of us. You, I don't know how many Americans would listen to Martin Luther King if there hadn't been a Malcolm X. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, Which me one? my heart's with the, with the Martin Luther King. Yeah, well, that's just it. I, but I understand the Malcolm X. And rather than being threatened by the anger, I'd be like, wow, what, what stoked that anger? What is it that we have done? I don't think that anger that should makes be that sub- person feel that helpless. Yeah. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like that anger should be like suppressed because then it can turn into something ugly and then you end up with like a civil war. I wonder though, how do you integrate that in a way that is convincing for people to be able to see? Like, that's the for question example, I've been wondering. I know well about. so here's Here's something about like critical race theory. That's a hot topic lately. So it depends on who you talk to, what it even means. I'll ask you this. So I'm not putting words in your mouth. Uh, Is the system that we have, can it be saved with incremental progress or does it need to be dismantled completely? Such a good question. And I wish I knew the answer to something like that. I don't know what works. If someone really had figured out what works, they'd be doing it somewhere and it would be working. Right? I think right. This, is, this whole thing is a mess. But I, I don't know that anything happens until the people in power start understanding and waking up. And, and I do think that, I think that the people who are being hurt in a system are in a horrible pickle because they've actually been truly harmed. Like, even if it's not big T trauma, there's little T trauma going on. Anyone who is just not seen and not believed and not understood, it causes damage to ourselves that we hold in our body. These are the people that need to be heard, yet trying to get yourself to be heard by someone who doesn't want to hear you deepens your own trauma. Like this, these are the things that we're dealing with. And we're dealing with human nature where the people in power turn 
no fault of their own can't see it. So they're not bad people. No one's a bad person in any of it, but everyone ends up being threatened and vilified mm. because I don't understand someone's anger who's been harmed. I, I don't like it. And I just say, you know what? They are going about it the wrong way rather than, rather than this is, this is one of the keys I think for all of us is, and one of my biggest hopes lately is actually the neuroscience coming in on trauma in the body. Mm-hmm. You know, the body keeps the score is a book that's had a big cultural impact and a big medical impact. And I think we need to start keep going that way because one of the things that can help us huge, there's, there's a movie called the wisdom of trauma. And if you go to the wisdom of you can watch this movie. I highly recommend it. And one of the big messages I got from it is that people in society that, who we judge, you know, people who have addiction problems, people who are in prison, the homeless, you know, among others, mm-hmm. or people who are really angry and loud <laughs> because they're being hurt by a system. That could be another one that really gets harshly judged. If we could start seeing people not for what's wrong with them, not for the way they do things, but if we could see them for what has happened to them, I think it would make a, an enormous change in our society. I think our entire judicial system, our penal system would be relooked at. I think the way that we deal with the homeless, the way we deal with the mentally ill, it would change because so many of us spend time looking at your reaction is wrong. So you need to get your own personal responsibility, get your ducks in a row before anyone will listen to you rather than saying, wow, you are so angry. There must be something really deeply hurtful that you've been through. And I want to hear that and listen to that. Oh yeah. Really hearing, hard hearing, hearing people would heal a lot of people. I think I actually very, very much agree with that. Um, yeah. But I would interject a little bit there that I don't fully understand it. As I was listening to you, I noticed mm-hmm. that you describe these people in power. They need to be more humble. They need to do this, 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 this whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a person out there that doesn't have the trauma of life. Like life is not easy for anybody. And so it's really, it's strange to hear like minorities have, Mm -hmm. they have a different problem. Like you definitely, if you're a minority, you're going to go through different struggles than if you're in the majority in any situation. And I, I understand that. Yep. I don't, know that we have really a good solution for it though and it's just always going to happen I was talking to a friend and she was saying when she lived in Baltimore she was one of the only white people and she was harassed relentlessly like Mm -hmm. it happens when you're a minority and correct I don't I don't know that I mean there's always going to be that bias there there is so our only hope is becoming aware of it we are just naturally nicer to people that look like us. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And so when you're in the minority, that is going to affect you. Correct. And all we can do is try to educate ourselves. I, I don't, I don't see, oh man, I guess I just have a hard time because I see that we've come so far. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes when you say that, well, I, I mean, saying that I can just hearing people saying that, that, it's not enough or and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's still just really, really bad. Okay. Let me say, let me ask this. So we are, mm-hmm. a, um, colorblind is not okay. Like we can't say colorblind. We need to be aware of race if we're going to fix mm-hmm. the problem. Right. That isn't, mm-hmm. that, am I right? That's, I mean, I, I agree with that. 
okay. So I, I was, I was trying to steal man because that's not something I actually believe in colorblindness. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's, I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think, I think I heard Sam Harris say something like this. As soon as we care as much about skin color as we do about hair color, that will be mm-hmm. better than where we're at now. Um, Agreed. Uh, so I think it's a, I think it's ahead. a continuum. The way I see it, it's a continuum. Explain that. So, okay. So I think colorblindness is the ultimate goal. I think that we're not there. And so colorblindness where we are is harmful. So I think there's a colorblindness on one end of a spectrum that, that, so, so it, that okay. comes from a place of, well, okay, we're all the same and you, you shouldn't have a problem because we're all mm-hmm. the same and we all have the same opportunities. And I say that because I'm in the core and I have all the opportunities. And I think we have to get to a place, you know, it's kind of like, um, I, I see this also in like the LGBTQ community, right? There, there are a lot of people who say, don't tell me what your identity is. We don't need to, know. we're just all human. So I think that's coming from a similar place. And I think the people saying it are well-meaning people mm-hmm. because what they see is this ultimate place where, yes, it shouldn't matter. But when someone has been denied basic human rights and, and dignity for some component of who they are, we as a society need to say, you matter, mm-hmm. your identity is important, I see that you're Black and I see what you've been through, and it's not okay, and we want to do something different, and we want more equity among everybody. We do want more equality. We want to figure all of that out. Once we've done that and those people say, oh, wow, you see me? You see me. That's amazing. Like, I do feel like I belong here. I do feel like I'm one. Now we can get to a place where we're colorblind. Yes, colorblindness is the higher law. But dealing with people and their own trauma and what they've been through, they need to be affirmed before we can get there. And, and we can only say we're there when they tell us they belong. When they tell us they feel like they belong, then yes, please, let's all be colorblind. Well, since we know the nature of humans and how differently we all think, they will never feel like they belong, right? I mean, the utopia will never be reached. I, I think that, I think so colorblindness is never going to be okay to say, right? Maybe. That just means we have more work to do. And I think in small groups... I think there are places where people can feel like they belong. It's going to take us a long time to have a critical mass where that becomes the acceptable thing. Yeah, I think so. But I, uh, I think there are places where, where people of different colors of different races and backgrounds can probably be together and with enough trust and work together, they can all say we're pretty comfortable in this setting being colorblind. I think that is possible. And that gives me hope that it could spread as we all have a a bigger way of looking at things. Because I can tell you, I would love as a a fringy member of the church, I would love for someone to say, we love all of you. All of you is welcome here. We welcome you saying the things in the church that you feel like you see hurting people, right? But for them to say, no, we're all fine. We're all good. We're all the same. We're all Latter-day Saints. Just do what we're doing. Yeah, we can all kind of aspire to like, yeah, we're all children of God here. But if there are things that are still hurting some of us and we can't be heard, I don't know that it's going to be a safe place for us. I don't know that it's a great place for us. And I don't know that we can all just say we're children of God. We've got to listen to the people who are harmed. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I would say that we're more aware of race today than before. We're more aware. So is it helping, do you think? Who's to say I'm white? I don't know. We need to ask somebody who is black to ask if they if it's helping. Um, hmm. You know, I hope. I mean, it's it's kind of like this. This is what here's a framing I use. Is it if ten is the ideal, where we're all colorblind, where we're all children of God, where we're all here, we're all you know equal, and we're at a two. Yeah. And over a decade, we make a shift from a two to a two and a half. There's still a lot of pain out there. Yeah. And there's this tragic gap, a philosopher named it that, the tragic gap. There's this tragic gap where our hearts are broken and people are hurt. Yeah. And people for whom it work want to, for again, who are not as harmed by whatever that aspect is. And I, I, I totally hear your point that everybody has difficulty in their life. We're just talking about narrowing it to the specific problem that the minority is having as being part of the system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if we're, if we're moving, inching forward, yes, we need to say, look at where we've come. We need that for human hope. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. need it. At the same time, we can't say that overrides because we've made progress. You should be fine when you're still being hurt. I I don't hear conservatives saying that though. I hear them saying we've come a long way. Okay. If Mm -hmm. we need to improve, give me something very specific and we'll improve that. I don't, and, and then what I hear on the left side of things is something more like, we don't even know what it is to fix because it's just systemic. It's in the system. I can't even point to it because it's just in, it's just there. And so then that gives me a sense of I hopelessness. Hear liberals, I hear liberals say, I hear something different. I hear liberals say they know exactly what they want to have happen. They just don't know how to get it done because because of what I've said, there's this, so, there are so many people. Well, what is it that they would have happen then? I mean, on different, different issues, you know, I mean, I think we all want the so same like, end goal. How about mm-hmm. engineers? Should there be 50, 50 engineers, women and men? Like, is that the goal? Cause there's 50, 50 women and men in the population. I, I don't know. I haven't thought this through, but my initial idea is that in any given profession, I don't know that that's true. I mean, you think of the sciences, I kind of just want the people who are inclined to science. If there are, if there are systemic stories that tell a woman who would have natural inclination to engineering and science, that she doesn't even imagine the possibilities because she's told she needs to be a mom, a stay-at-home mom, I can see how we've gotten to where we are. I don't know that men are just naturally better at, at these things. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty amazing so, science and math person. So I would have enjoyed those careers. But, but what I'm saying is, I don't think it, you start with, this is what it should be. I think you look at it and say, well, there is an inequity. I wonder, is that, I think a liberal would be fine if we just find out genetically that a certain person is more disposed to something. I just don't think that's ever been shown to be true we see that there's an inequity there because for generations, women were told a different story about what their possibilities were. And so they have children and we have stories around all of that. So what, what I think what a liberal would say is let's break all that down and mm -hmm. see what is happening and remove any barriers that there are to whoever isn't represented. Are there barriers? Let's get curious about that. 
Mm-hmm. What, what, what might those be? Have we limited people? Let's remove the, the barriers to limitation. And then when you remove as many barriers as you can, you would expect mm-hmm. to see more women I would. in those fields. I would. So this is another thing that Jordan Peterson has harped on. So there are mm-hmm. countries that are more designed like that, where they mm-hmm. push women to do mm-hmm. whatever they want to do. And mm-hmm. they actually, given the choice, still don't mm-hmm. choose engineering. So mm-hmm. what does that and mean? And that may be. Good. Very good question. I mean, like I said, I don't like, know enough. I would be curious about it to mm-hmm. see, is Jordan making sweeping possibilities or generalities over so it be worth looking into? Like maybe we should um, look, at, look into that and reconvene. He claims 100%. that it's, it's 100%. The, of the social scientists who were left-leaning, uh-huh. it was a mm-hmm. surprising finding for them. And, I'm sure and, it, and it was made by people that would want the same thing that you're wanting. So, um, Well, I'm just wanting the barriers to not be there. I'm wanting people to be self-determining. That's what I'm wanting. I, I agree. And if that means that we naturally end up in a place where more men are in science, I'm fine with that. I'm just well, saying, here's an I interesting people like me uh-huh. I know people like me. I didn't go into the sciences. Yeah. I didn't. And I have really good ability for it. Mm-hmm. And I've been through a lot of mourning in my life because I limited myself because of what I thought God wanted of me. Mm-hmm. And I stayed home with my yeah. kids and I did not choose a career. I chose a career that would be easier to come in and out of. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I hear you. Um, but at the same time with this push to make sure women can be whatever they want to be, what about the women that do really want to stay home and be moms? Like, are we going to make them feel and guilty for doing that? that? You know what I mean? Like, 100% not. Because I'll be 100% honest, not. I did some STEM. I did STEM and I mm-hmm. felt like I was letting down women by staying mm-hmm. home with my kids. I had a professor mm-hmm. that really pressured me to get my master's and I turned him down. And it was an LDS guy, by the way. Like, I everything around me was LDS. Um, yep. I. I guess it's just weird. I find that to be as tragic. I find that to be as tragic as my story. Yeah. I want self-determination. I want to encourage people. And I want to celebrate the women who stay home with their kids because they really want to. Yes. I want to encourage people to do what they want to do, right? To do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would would love to encourage people to do what they want to do. And, And I feel like you encourage people to do what they want to do. You don't you don't sideline them um, or, or, or pressure them to do something else because you're uncomfortable with it. You yes. encourage them to do what they think they need to do. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'll let, I'll let, I'll let you go. This has been a really fun conversation. I'll be honest. Such a I, good am conversation. Too, I am Thank too scared you. to publish this though. I didn't say I'm, the right I'm thing. I'm foolhardy. I'm just like, whatever. If I did say what wanna... I think. I trust you, Jenna. I don't trust, I don't trust out there. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, and I've given, and I've relinquished that, honestly, it's like, you know, that's fine. I'll say what I want to say. And hmm. what I think you should do is. I might only release. I'm happy to have this conversation again. If you want to just take it in different directions, I'm good. Like, do you think that would be a helpful conversation to have in public? People can talk about these things. Thing is though, we're not, we're not the, we're not the we're not the final say on it. So maybe nobody cares what we no. think about it. And with that, but without the conversation and without people having conversation, we don't go anywhere. That's true. If we wait for someone else who's more qualified, I mean, all of our maybe, opinions matter, all of our experience matters. Well, and honestly, 
if anybody takes the time to watch it, maybe they will hear something they've never heard. Maybe someone hasn't ever heard the, the steel man of either side before. I definitely have stuff I can learn and I understand that. I, we all do. It's not like I'm an expert on this stuff. When I, when I say activism doesn't make sense, it's not that I don't mm-hmm. think there's a place. I think it's a natural thing that happens because there is someone that's mm-hmm. maligned for some reason. Yeah. Now, could that maligning be that our society is not functionally giving people meaning and purpose so that they can self-improve? That could Mm -hmm. be it too. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. like if we had a better, better system to support individuals, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we wouldn't have those people on the fringe, but anyways. Okay. Well, absolutely. All of that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for coming on and this was fun and hopefully we run into each other somewhere. (laughs) Of course. Anytime. 